and said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. been given the terrifying task of readjusting this. Okay. That's all I'm going to do. I was afraid it was going to screech or squeal or make some loud banging noise. So we seem to have gotten out of it together. Um, so we are in, in the book of Genesis still. Um, when, we, when we were looking at this uh, study, we named this, this book, this study, our time here as authority. Um, and there's lots of reasons for that. The scriptures are our authority for life. Uh, God is our authority for all that we know. And the book of Genesis gives us everything that we need to know about the creation account. Uh, of course, together with the whole of scripture, we're not left without anything. Um, and so we need no more. Now, there are certainly very interesting topics that we can talk through. In fact, I talked with a brother just this morning around fossil records and, and dinosaurs and always fun conversation. At the end of the day, um, we, we know that the scriptures start out in Genesis 1-1, and they say, in the beginning, God. They don't describe why. They don't describe anything to you about God. They just tell you, in the beginning, God. And similarly, in the third chapter of Genesis, we get introduced to this character, the serpent, and it gives no introduction. It gives no background. I would encourage you, though, all over Scripture, you can find lots of references and do your own study to understand who who is this serpent or who is the devil, who is uh, the enemy of souls, who is the great accuser. It's all over the Scriptures, and it's a very interesting study, but we won't spend a lot of time on him this morning. Um, I do submit, though, by the end of Genesis 3, that we'll be impressed by something, I hope, and that is... That in the end, and when I say the end, I mean past revelation, um, in the end, we're going to have this newly created heaven and earth, and there will be no creature, whether angelic or previously human, I don't know if you continue the human label in new creation, new heaven and new earth, there will be no creature in the heavens or on new earth who has not seen or understood by experience the full ramifications of life outside of God's provision and care. Every single creature in the new heaven and new earth will have lived a life, however brief or long, knowing exactly what it's like to have doubted God's word and be without God's provision and specific care. And I'm always incredibly impressed by that. There will never again be a time where an accuser could go up to a creature in the new heaven and new earth and suggest that God's word be doubted. Because we would immediately say, no, no, no. No, 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 I lived through a life of that. No, thank you. Because that's where we are today. We are in a world that is corrupted in its existence, everything about its existence, everything from the ground and the plants on the earth, the animals. Scripture says that everything groans with the pangs of the fall. So there will never again, past this life, be any reasonable doubt about God's goodness, grace, 
and worthiness of worship. It's only in this life that someone would doubt God's fairness in the way that he deals with something. And you hear that after any major calamity, whether it be an airplane hitting towers or someone's passing. How could God allow this? These creatures we are stuck in time in a broken world, constantly doubting God's goodness and his grace. And so the future perfect restoration will in a sense be more perfect than it was previously because of having experienced this life without God and his special providence and care. So Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 4 gives that picture. I'll read it. You can write it down, look there later. You can go there now. It'll be on the screens to my side. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I'll hit pause for a moment, so that means the great Pacific garbage patch is gone. That means the melting glaciers are gone. That means the earth and whatever its temperature is, whether it's rising or going away, is gone. It means all of your concerns about carbon are gone. That means all of the animals that People threw blood at each other, are gone. Picking back up in verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be there with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. The former things have passed away. I love when the scriptures speak in a tense that we are not. It reminds us of a timeless God. So how do we get to this future point where all creatures have known life separated from God, but are now, um, God is among them, He is their God, and, and He is present. There's no more separation. What does that look like? And that's why I would say Genesis chapter 3 is a book about restoration. The fall is part of it, but the fall was just a step towards restoration. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31, we see that God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And when we stop at Genesis 1.31, that's the creative work. Chapter 2 gives a new perspective, different angles, and a deeper dive into that same creative work. So picking up from Genesis 131, where God steps back from his work and says, it is all good. Picking up in Genesis 3, we see it's not, not very much transpires before that very good creation changes. And we're going to see something in the, in the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. We'll see that first... There's a temptation to doubt God's good intentions. We're going to see that in verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 3. A temptation to doubt God's good intentions. Next, or second, 
There's a temptation to trust the tempter's vision over God's. You'll see that in verse 4, to, tempt the, to trust the tempter's vision over God's vision in verse 4. And then finally, the third approach is to become God's glory. You see that in verse 5. So three things that Satan does. Number one, try to insert doubt about God's good intentions. Number two, try to get people to trust his vision over God's. And number three, try to tempt people to become God's glory. And so we come straight to this narrative from a six-day creation in Genesis 1 to a retelling of that creation in Genesis 2. And remember, there was a specific emphasis on the creation of people, the crown of creation, and now we just deadpan Genesis 3.1, which reads, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat out of the tree in the garden? Interesting verbiage that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast. Uh, Satan here is differentiated from the animals. And as God had recently created Adam and Eve and, and joined them as husband and wife of fresh creation, the serpent seems to single out the woman, single out the bride, and has this mission to sow seeds of doubt about who God is. Similar approach in the book of Job, if you pay attention to Job. Um, Job kills the entire family and leaves behind just his wife, this wife and his husband, and an entire family of wonderful children murdered. Satan attacks the marriage. In verses 2 and 6, we see that Satan is suggesting that God has some kind of a twisted motive. He's withholding knowledge from you. And so he gives this kind of logical evidence in verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He gives a logical evidence. Maybe it sounds right, seems to stand up. The logic makes sense. Logic is interesting like that. Um, if one woman can have one baby in nine months, isn't it logical that nine women working together can have one baby in one month? Logic checks out. And so this crafty serpent, more crafty than any other beast of the field, is twisting God's own words. Certainly it's true that they're going to have knowledge of good and evil. God will check on that later in the book of Genesis 3. But it turns out having that knowledge is not particularly helpful or useful or fun or nice. They didn't have that knowledge because they did not have to experience it. And it was better to live in a world under God's protective care than a world that was fallen from God and separated from Him. And that's why I say this is a book about restoration. Like we read from Revelation, we will be again joined and God will be our God and we will be a 
with him. He will be among his people. No more separation because of sin. That's the blessing of heaven. The blessing of heaven is not that while you live on this earth, every day will be a Friday. And if you pray for what you want, he'll give it to you and a check will show up in your mailbox and he'll give you things and stuff and comfort in this life. It totally stands against so much of what the scriptures have to say. The scripture says that this life is but a vapor. The scriptures talk about a process of sanctification by which we're tried like fire and conform more and more and more into the image of Jesus day by day. It doesn't describe this weird utopia that exists to serve us. It describes a, a life of sometimes blessing, sometimes temptation, sometimes fiery trials. In fact, it encourages us, don't be surprised by the fiery trials that we will endure, but yet we seem always so surprised by the fiery trials. And so Satan works to twist God's motive and tries to give logical evidence. From the time of the, the crowning of creation through the union of man and woman as husband and wife, they were given the job of ruling over the garden and everything in it, subduing everything in it. And interestingly, as a crafty serpent comes around, they are not so quick to subdue the creatures in the garden, but they're quick to succumb to this argument that God desires to withhold good knowledge from them. And so Eve eats. And when presented with the opportunity to join in, Adam, too, eats. Genesis 3, 6, and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, we've learned a lot about fashion since those days. We have sheen.com. And so you can pick any number of outfits and a month later it will arrive on your doorstep for 75 cents. Or you can be at a restaurant one evening and decide you need a leather coat and go on to Amazon, get an Amazon Basics leather coat delivered to your house in two days if you're a Prime member. I can only imagine what their little outfit that they've stitched together here looks like from leaves. The first piece of clothing, was it? would we consider that it was upside down or sideways? Who knows? These are the first people on earth, but also the first people to make some clothes. So probably wasn't very clean looking. I mean, they probably look pretty ridiculous when God comes into the garden and there they are wearing these leaves. They probably don't even know what to cover, right? Uh, do they cover their toes? Don't know. Never realized I was naked before. And so that's what we've got going on. And you see the results of the fall are immediate. God didn't have to come pronounce anything on them to realize that they were naked. They became immediately unashamed. They became immediately ashamed of themselves. And they probably couldn't even explain why they felt this weight of guilt. It was separation from God in this particular and careful way. They were now separated from God because they had trusted in something other than his word. They doubted God and it corrupted their relationship. They were called to care and keep everything in the garden. And at the suggestion of the serpent, to one, doubt God's good intentions. To two, 
trust the tempter's vision over God's, and to three, become God's glory. So if we hit pause here for a moment in this narrative, we remember Genesis 1.31, God said everything was good, and then the serpent enters into the garden. Um, when Adam succumbs to this temptation, he walks all of creation into a groaning and fractured relationship. But what we see in this narrative and in verse 15, shortly, will be a promise from God that he's going to do something. This was not a surprise to God. Sometimes we, we forget who God is and what his characteristics are. We, we forget that God is, is sovereign, meaning in control of all things. There is nothing that is not in the control of a sovereign God. And that means all aspects of your life. If you remember um, the, the narrative in, in Genesis chapter 2, and when we start seeing God as a covenant God, a relationship God, he's being spoken to as, as, as Yahweh Elohim, right? And, and, and that language is still continuing here into the third chapter because this is a story about redemption, and this is a story about relationship. We've seen God as the big God, the creator of the universe, who the psalm says stretched out the heavens and the stars like a cloak, like throwing it into existence, which is incredible because you think about space and time and they measure whether or not stars are coming towards you or going away from you by the light shift, red and blue shift off of the stars. It's all a matter of God's once creative work. And it's so interesting to know that we have both this massive God who creates from nothing, who creates everything from nothing. I mean, we're so blown away by, what, what was the, the, the white guy with the afro that did paintings on TV? What was his name? Bob Ross. We're like blown away by everything Bob Ross created. And then we're disinterested in God. Like, Wait a minute, that's like a lame facsimile of what God actually did. Yes, Bob Ross's happy little trees are pretty neat, but have you ever actually stepped out and seen a tree? They're pretty cool. Nature's pretty interesting. That's why John, Nicholas, and I go on nature walks. And you see aspens, and you can tell that they're an aspen by the way that they are. I mean, it's, the world is actually fascinating if you look at it rather than just through TV or Institute and Facegram. But we're so happy to look at anything that's just not what God has done. We're so happy to just be distracted. We're so happy to just idly let time pass away while we get closer and closer to death. Complaining about the awful circumstances of our life. Oy vey, I had to eat a whole plate of spaghetti that wasn't very great tonight. Oh, I, have to, I have to make up work. You ever go down on Front Street um, in downtown Harrisburg? There's the YMCA. And on top of the YMCA, there's these windows. And inside, there's people pretending like they're running. Right? They're like manufacturing activity. They're going nowhere. They're looking at the river. And, and they're making their body be like someone who works, but they don't work. And they're trying to burn off all the food and the excess that they've eaten so that they don't get fat. Life is interesting. Glory to God that we see future redemption through what will become King Jesus' undoing of this very moment. Um, you think of the, the serpent comes directly to, to Adam and Eve, 
right? And there's plenty of, of debate over who, who was the serpent talking to? Where was Adam? Was the serpent a creature that God created and it was evil? No, that doesn't align to Scripture. Did Satan enter into this serpent? Probably. And so you've got this situation where somehow the accuser, the enemy of souls, comes directly to this fresh creation, this new bride and groom, and starts to challenge the Word of God and say, He's withholding from you. He's withholding something from you. And so they doubt the Word of God. And so then... That is, you know, Adam. We see Scripture talks about the first Adam. That is the first Adam. And so now God has created Adam freshly from a big pile of dirt, blew life into him, resuscitating his body, giving him life, creating him in the image of the Godhead, the Imago Dei, with all of these capabilities that are ascribed to God. We have these, these, these abilities to think. We're ensouled creatures. And so God creates, and then from his side, because there is nothing else fit in all of creation, from his side, God makes a helper. These two come together like Voltron, and they form one complete creature that brings God even more glory as they exist relationally together. And so when faced with a tempter, these human creations, these beings that are God, uh, that are God's creation, succumb to that temptation. And so God does not make fresh people after that, right? We all come after that seed. So from Adam and Eve come all people after that. God's not making new piles of dirt, blowing life into their nose, taking new ribs out and saying, let's start over. He has before kind of wiped a lot of us out and then started over with a few, but it always seems to come back to the same thing. And so it's not like you can say, well, what if you just wiped out all the bad people? Okay, reality, God already did that. It's just that people love darkness more than they love light. We always go crawling back like a pig to vomit. And so what we see in Jesus' life, um, in, in, a, in, in two instances certainly, Matthew 4 and Luke 4, we see this temptation scene happens again in the second Adam. Jesus himself is tested by Satan to doubt God's intentions, to trust the tempter's vision, and to become God's glory. You see it in the temptation in the wilderness, and, and, and just to kind of level things up, fasts first for a very long time. And then as you read the story, is ushered by the Holy Spirit to go be tempted. Why? Because Jesus will be tempted and tried in all ways, like us, including all the way back to the original sin in the garden, the original sin of all humanity. Jesus will resist that temptation and every other possible temptation where we fail over and over and over again. And he will do all of that without ever sinning. Not in thought and not in deed. You can't even drive down the street without sinning about the way that you think about the person and how they drove near you. Jesus lived an entire life on earth without road raging. And I know what you're thinking. It's because he didn't have a car. Now, if you've driven through Amish country, you know how frustrating it is to be stuck behind a horse and buggy. There's nothing that will make you crazier. You just want to rip off your own skin and run out of your car screaming. He lived in always like us, just without sin. And so we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about this second Adam that Jesus is. Because, like I say, Genesis 3 is a story about redemption. 
in order to know how great the redemption is, we have to know how bad the fall is. And so, you know, I've said before, um, in life with cancer, anymore it seems, if you live long enough, you just find out what your particular cancer is going to be. So in life, you need someone who can point that out to you. Right? If you, if you went to a doctor who was like, gosh, you know, I can see that this person has cancer, but it would really hurt their feelings if I told them they'd be so sad and their family would be sad. And so this doctor, every time you come in, can clearly see all of the evidence of cancer just riddling your body and would never say anything to you. And it could have been treated so long ago, but they didn't want to make your family feel bad, didn't want to make you feel bad, didn't want you to feel scared. That's what it's like if people aren't confronted with sin. Sin is deadly, literally deadly. And we think everything about this life is so important. This is nothing. This is vapor in the grand scheme of things. The most important thing in our lives is to realize our sin before a holy God to repent and become saved. And then to go wash, rinse, and repeat. Like you've ever read the, the instructions on a shampoo bottle, right? It's like you never get to stop. You just constantly use this product, wash, rinse, and repeat. This is how we're to live. But sometimes we're more concerned perhaps with work, with career, with how we're perceived by people around us. And we should be less concerned about those things. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 45 through 49. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, created out of the ground, blown into the nostrils. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That's Jesus. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Adam is that, the first Adam is that man made from dust, life breathed into him. And so then 1 Corinthians 15 gives us the future vision or our today. It would have been future in Genesis. It's, it's our now of restoration of humanity from the impacts of the fall where we all die in Adam. Temptation that pulled man away changed everything. And that's so important to see that the doubting of God at his word that the going in some direction that God said, don't do it, changed, materially changed everything. Everything immediately changed in a moment. They immediately knew they were naked and ashamed. And they made those really weird outfits. This is the corruption that we live in today. And that's what 1 Corinthians is talking about. We all come after that seed of the first creation that was made out of the clay, made out of the dust of the ground. And because of that, we inherit its 
realities. We inherit its characteristics, just like our family, right? If you happen to come from a family with a, a huge schnoz, you know, and everybody has this huge honking nose everywhere you go, you're like, oh, man, why was I born in this family with these crazy nose? We're tall people. Maybe you're in a family of tall people, and so everywhere you go, you endure the same jokes. Oh, how's the weather up there? These inheritances, these family traits are magnified in Adam from person to person to person. We are fallen away from God. And so that is the first creation that 1 Corinthians is talking about. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. And so we get this connection to the second Adam, who is Jesus, as Jesus himself talks about in John 3, 4. He's talking to Nicodemus. He gives Nicodemus some challenging things. Nicodemus was uh, from the tribe of Smartalians, right? He makes a little joke with Jesus. Oh, what am I supposed to crawl in the womb and be born again? I already said oy vey, so that would, that would kind of like, I, I kind of wanted to say that. But, oy vey, am I supposed to climb in the womb? John chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's pause on that for a moment. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's telling this to one of, the, one of the Pharisees, someone who's very aware of the law, who believes that because of his lineage and connection perhaps to Abraham, that he just dies and he goes to live with God forever and just needs to study the word a little bit. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You see, he's being funny with Jesus. He's got jokes. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit, the Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Another looking, another looking glass in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This rebirth, this being born again, being born of water and spirit, this moving on from being a fleshly earthen man to being a spiritual man puts us in the second Adam that we're hearing about in 1 Corinthians 15. The rebirth is away from the first Adam and being joined to the second Adam being joined to Christ and bound to Christ and found in Christ with the Holy Spirit in us whose whole ministry is to remind us of sin and righteousness and judgment. 
This is why in the book of Ephesians, Paul will celebrate Jesus who has everything under his charge as rightful king and as over the church. And the key is, he says it's because of their faith in Ephesians 1.15. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 and 5, And you were dead in the trespasses of your sins, and once you, in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And again, all of that comes to be true because of what we see in, a, in, in verse 15 of chapter 1, which says, For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not think I do not cease to give my thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the Lord God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What a blessing to be connected to a second Adam, to have Jesus Christ have undone the debt of sin and walked us into a new life, really knowing and understanding the depths of the fall and understanding that we are brought into Christ and that we are covered so much better than any leaf outfit or sheen giddy-up you can put together. We are covered in Christ and His righteousness. And that is how God sees us now when we have a spiritual second birth from earth and flesh and dust into one of spirit. That's what we see as the undoing of Genesis chapter 3's fall where Satan tempted to doubt God's good intentions, to trust the tempter's vision, and to encourage Adam and Eve to become God's own glory. That's the substance of what happened in the fall. And we see it today all over the place. I mean, think of those three things. To doubt God's intentions, you really don't have to be very creative to see that in the world around you today. Doubting God's intentions. Would a good God really do this? Would a, God, would a fair God really do that? Is God really loving if these things happen? And so we think as members of creation looking out into the world, we can put an edict or a judgment on a sovereign creator God. It's almost laughable, really. We see it in the name of high knowledge, the kinds of things that people will say about and ascribe to God. Even people that say they start from scriptures go some weird places that scripture does not also go. We doubt the God of creation and his clear order in life. 
God gives a very clear order to how life works and is to work. And people doubt it. It really will not be long before people demand with venom and passion that you call up, down, and down, up. Um, there was a book, I, I believe it was Carson wrote it, um, The Intolerance of Tolerance. Was it Carson? I would commend you to read that book. It's not new. It's not really old, but it's not new. Um, but it is incredible, the kinds of things that he talks about with the intolerance of tolerance. And it oftentimes the world around us stands in bold-faced opposition to everything that the Scripture says is true and then demands that you agree, not accept. It demands that you agree with what it has concluded, that you agree opposite of what Scripture says. And we must not. We must absolutely not. It's an unwavering no. But it's also not a furious no. Um, because if you, if you were to walk up to me and say, John, your shoes are orange clown shoes, it wouldn't make me mad because they are not orange clown shoes. And so in the same way, when the world around me demands that I agree with something that is unreasonable and frankly not true, it doesn't infuriate me. In fact, it just makes me want to state my claim and say why what I see is right is right and then pray for people so that they would also see truth because I do understand from the scriptures that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And so the reason we pray for people and we pray for salvation is because we believe that a sovereign God can impact people and can call them and woo them and draw them to salvation. And so that's our desire. Not to belittle or be angry with or hate or be recalcitrant towards, but to be salt and to be light and to give a reason for the hope and the faith that lies within us. And so when someone says, do you really believe that God created the earth and everything in it in six days? I say, absolutely. I sure do. Yep. And there's a lot of great reasons to believe it. But the number one reason is because when I go to Genesis 1, by the time I get to Genesis 1.31, God looks back and says, everything was good. He said, I did it in six days. And so that's what I believe. And I think then the test becomes Scripture itself. And the test of Scripture itself is very hard You'll, you'll have people tell you, you probably know someone who will tell you, well, the scripture was passed down from, from person to person and ear to ear, and it's full of errors. Show me one. Show me one. But of course, the work of apologetics or specific apologetics is not the work of evangelism. Because I might be able to convince someone I'm right. Somebody else might be able to convince them they're wrong. Neither of us has done anything for their eternal soul. The question is always, that's all really interesting. But where do you stand? If you were to die today, where do you stand before a holy and righteous judge who will ask you and call you to give account for everything, every thought, every word, every action and every deed before his holy character? Not before your friend Nadine or your buddy Hector and how much better or worse were you in gradient to Nadine and Hector, but before God's own holy character. And it's not like he's written up some rules and say, ha ha, and like he's like doing one of these numbers with his hands. Let's see if you can uphold these rules. It's not that. He's measuring you by his character, which is perfect and loving and holy, which just means completely different. It's completely different than you. So can you live up to God's standard? No. The word for it's holy, which means different. So you literally cannot, and you're not asked to. You're asked to be found in Christ and to not trust yourself anymore, but trust Christ as Lord in addition to Savior. 
Paul would, would later in, in the book of Romans talk about really the ramifications of the fall. As a, it's like, you know, if, if, if I was to shoot an arrow from here to the back of the room and I was off two inches to the right, if you were to send that shot eight miles down the road, it would be a lot more off than two inches, right? Because it just kind of keeps going out. And so you've got original sin in the garden, right? They just agreed with the tempter. Um, 2,000 years later, 10,000 years later, however you want to calculate the time span, 4,000 years later, the, the, the gradient and the quality of sin has increased mightily. And so Paul said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Have you ever seen a culture of people that could be described like that? I'm with you. Lots of other protracted ramifications. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And so... In Genesis 3, verses 20 and 21, we see that death has entered into the world. And by His grace and mercy, then, God gives clothing to the man and to the woman. That's merciful. He's got these terrified creatures before Him. Right? Like, if we were God, we'd probably stomp through there like some huge monster. He broke my rules and smashed them. What does God do? He doesn't issue some edict against he covers them he clothes them he asks them to consider themselves and then lovingly and mercifully and graciously he wraps them in in more appropriate clothing but what a loving god you know you 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 hear people say well the old testament is a god of judgment and wrath god is a god of judgment and wrath because he judges against sin and the protraction of sin is awful. Sin is wretched. It's deplorable. You say you hate things like murder and rape. That is the result of sin. And that's why God hates sin. He has no fellowship with sin. He has no fellowship with unrighteousness. But he's merciful because he remembers we're but dust. And so in the very moments when the first person of creation who, who sinned and in fact said, it's the woman you gave me. So ultimately, God, it's really your fault because you gave me this woman and she made me sin. And so God doesn't smash or kill or destroy. He clothes them. I'd love to see that outfit too, guys. Like that kind of probably look pretty cool. Whatever God put together. Probably looked pretty neat. Maybe it was like one of those Viking coats, you know, with like a bunch of fur on it or something. Definitely better than the leaves, I would submit. And so the first skins used for clothing, and now death is in the world. The omniscient, meaning all-knowing God, who created Adam and Eve in the very image of the Godhead, we see in Genesis 1.26, now talks about a knowledge of good and evil because of the suggestion of the tempter to Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.22 Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like 
one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Oops, sorry. So God stops this environment that they were living in. He stops Adam and Eve from continuing in this state forever. By his grace, he gives them an expiration date, a time to die. And there's a time for that, right? There's a time to live. There's a time to die. It's a song. And so interesting that God says that the man has become like, like one of us, knowing good and evil. So how, does, how is it that God knows good and evil? It's not experientially like they do. It's not that he knows evil in the same way that Adam and Eve do because now they have uh, worked out against God and all the creatures after him know evil because they do evil things. God knows evil because of his omniscience. He knows. He, you ever heard of the, uh, the, you know, the concept of the butterfly effect, right? Like the butterfly wing just flapping over here causes these amazingly insane things to happen over here, but they're all kind of connected in a chain. Um, this does not describe God's sovereignty. That's not how God's sovereignty works. He, he foretells the things that will occur. He doesn't kind of necessarily play events based on what you do. However, his omniscience suggests that he would know every possible outcome. And so by his omniscience, he knows all of the full impacts and ramifications of evil. If you do an evil work, he knows everything that would happen after that. In fact, sometimes steps into time to perhaps restrain or stop you or stop that chain of events by intervention, whether miraculous or normal. And so God knows good and evil in those ways. And by his grace... He states the plan for redemption right here and in these moments as he's listing out all of the things that are now going to occur because of their sin. In verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first pronouncement of the gospel. This is called the Proto-Evangelion. This is the pre-gospel. This is the first time right in the middle of this fall narrative, right after God pronounces everything good in Genesis 1.31, he, right after the fall, he starts explaining to them the things that are going to happen after he gives his edict to the serpent in verses 14 and the first half of 15, and then he says, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is God offering the plan of redemption. And from that mention, you see something very interesting in Adam. I think this is Adam responding to this pre-gospel. What does he say of his wife after this? Verse 20, what is the first thing that Adam says? The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. I think that is Adam taking God at his word for redemption and changing and having change of heart. You read of the way that salvation comes is by faith. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And seeing that God is true, we see John chapter 3, verses, or verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Romans chapter 
3, verses 4 and 5, says, By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So we see in a moment from Genesis 1.31 that everything is good to the temptation of Genesis 3.1 all the way through to the fall of Genesis 3.7. This is all the impact of doubting God's good intentions, trusting the tempter's vision over God's, and working to become God's own glory. There are things that are reserved to God for His glory. If you were to read the Westminster Shorter or Longer Catechism, it would say that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But so frequently we try to take God's own glory, and we do it in all kinds of ways. Um, we, we try to take God's glory by making our seems, ourselves seem smarter than we are or than we ought to be. We are literally dirt creatures. And we take a lot of pride in ourselves sometimes. In, in order to be redeemed, every single person needs to submit themselves to Christ to even understand the world around them. Repentance is turning from trusting yourself to turning to trusting Christ as Lord forever for every decision. Um, submitting yourself to God because you are a worm before him, a wretch, a liar, a murderer of character. When you see Jesus talks about um, he, Jesus gives his teaching on the law and, and, and he gives an interesting perspective on murder. He says, if you hated your brother in your heart, you're already guilty of the sin of murder. God is really not impressed that we did not strangulate someone until they stopped breathing forever and ever. He, he is concerned about the position of our heart because that's the root of what would cause someone to murder. So if you have restrained yourself, if you've taught yourself through behavior modification, if you've put a rubber band on your wrist and snapped it every time you got mad at someone, and so you stop getting mad at people because you don't like your wrist hurting, God's not impressed by that. He's trying to describe to us that we are murderers by our very character and our nature, and so we need redemption in the man Christ Jesus, every single human being. There is no person who does not need God's grace and mercy in Christ, because we must be connected to the new spiritual Adam. Otherwise, we're connected to the earth man who trusted a talking snake over the very word of God. And so we have to be found in Christ. And what a, what a great thing that God promised it all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that we could be restored, we could be renewed, that he had a plan and he had a vision. He already had everything put together. The serpent is the one that's operating in time without all knowledge. God has all knowledge, knows all things, and has already made this plan. Jesus has not plan B. It's not like God said, oh, my goodness, the tempter came up with a pretty good plan, jumping in that snake and talking to the woman and getting him to eat an apple or a fruit. And so now I've got to figure out this thing. I'm going to do the Jesus thing. Everybody's going to make cool bracelets. They're going to say WWJD. Um, I'm going to have some cool singers. They're going to make some bands. Hillsong's going to be a thing. Everybody's going to love their music. I'll be glorified in that. The vision of the future is well told in Romans chapter 16 and verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's how I'm going to start like signing all my emails from now on. <laughs> the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I pray that for us, of this church, that the picture 
of redemption in Genesis 3.15 is one that belongs to us. One that we rightly hold claim to. That Christ as our Savior and Lord describes each and every one of us. God is a merciful creator who clothed the sinner in the garden while also at the same time giving the promise to redeem his creation while, while wrapping their trembling naked bodies mercifully in clothing. God has this plan for Jesus to undo the exact elements of the fall and live tempted and tried in all ways like his people, but without sin, making him the rightful Savior and the second Adam. I pray that you are encouraged, just as I'm encouraged, by this wonderful picture in Genesis, and that you'll spend more time this week even diving into that word, looking forward to the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth that Genesis describes. Do we know all things about them? No. No, it's such a great, wonderful, earthly, otherworldly vision of what new creation and new earth are going to be. Heaven is not something that we can just easily describe. Are your pets going to be there? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. Will there be interesting things to do? Maybe, maybe not. Is there going to be baseball? I hope not. That game's way too long. But I do know that God promises a place with no more tears and no more sadness and no more pain. And so as we'll have a memorial for Sheila later uh, this afternoon, she would have told you that that's what she longed for. Um, She hated nothing more than to walk on that walker and have her ankles be miserable and live in that body. And she no longer does. And she experiences the kinds of joy that we're seeing that God promises in the book of Genesis and its, and its redemption story, but also in the book of Revelation that talks about a place where their God, our God lives in the same place that we do. No more separation because the, the pangs of this earth and its implications of fallen creation are all gone. An eternal dwelling populated by no creature, angelic or human, who has not seen by experience the full ramification of life outside of God's provision and care. It's going to be wild. Let's pray. Great God, we thank you for a vision of the past, but also of your plan and your future. And God, we thank you to be um, counted among those who are a part of that blessed future. Um, God, I pray for all of us in the room, Lord, that we would hear your clear call to salvation in Christ to be Um, found in the second spiritual Adam, God, that we would all be called to be born again. Lord, that we would be found in your Son and that you would call us your own. And God, that we would go tell people who are listening and people who aren't of your great news, of your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.